WNYC Studios is supported by Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music, politics, technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radiolab adventures right on the edge of what we think we know, wherever you get podcasts. This is All of It. I'm Allison Stewart, live from the WNYC studios in Soho. Thank you for listening. I hope you're staying warm and dry on this big sweater and boots kind of day. Coming up on All of It later this week, a topic near and dear to my heart as a Jersey girl. We're going to be talking diners. We'll talk about the best ones in our areas and take your area and take your calls. Plus, WNYC reporter Nancy Solomon joins us to tell us what makes Jersey diner culture unique, especially when it comes to local politics. That will happen on Thursday's show. Now, let's get this hour started with another installment of our public song project. We're spending this week launching the second edition of the Public Song Project with some very special friends of the show. Yesterday, we heard a song from pianist Arturo O'Farrell, and today we're excited to debut a song from another generous contributor, Lokut Kani. Here is a refresher. We launched the Public Song Project last year, inviting anyone 18 or older to send us an original recording of a song based on work in the public domain. Every year, new works, books, songs, movies enter the U.S. public domain, meaning they can be freely shared, copied, adapted, and recorded by anyone. And that freedom to adapt and create is something we want to celebrate with you. Last year, we gave you free reign of the public domain. This year, we're narrowing things down a little bit and asking you to focus on work from the 1920s. Why the 20s? Well, first, a century is kind of a nice round number. And also just happens that 1924 was the year WNYC started broadcasting. And as the station gears up to celebrate its centennial, we thought we'd invite you to celebrate the music and art that was in the air and on the air around that time. Now, according to U.S. copyright law, works from the 20s have been entering the public domain over the last several years, meaning their copyrights expired. And that includes music from the Gershwins, Irving Berlin, Bessie Smith, Ma Rainey, and works from authors like Agatha Christie, F. Scott Fitzgerald, Langston Hughes, and so many more. Just make sure you're drawing from work that is in the public domain from the 1920s. You do not have to be a professional to submit, but your work could be featured alongside some pros like Bella Fleck, Rhiannon Giddens, and many more artists. For more information on the project and your options, go to wnyc.org slash public song project. That is wnyc.org slash public song project. We're going to update the website as the week goes on with more songs from station friends, including my next guest, Adam Weiner, the of the Philly rock and roll band Low Cut Connie. Hi, Adam. Hi, Allison. So happy to be here with you. Really happy to have you, and thank you for participating in this project. It's great that you are you're help you're coming aboard. Um, what about this project interested you? Well, I'm fascinated by songs from the 1920s. 
you know, the record business started a hundred years ago. We have a hundred years of recorded music, really more than a hundred years ago, but it was really the 1920s when songs uh, became pervasive throughout the United States and the world. Victrola's record players spread to average homes. Radio was starting to explode and songs really became hits. The idea of a hit song really was created in the 1920s. And so I'm fascinated by the the songs that resonated with people 100 years ago and that in some ways still resonate today. The song you chose to perform, Shuck and Sugar Blues by Blind Lemon Jefferson from 1927. Do you remember the first time you heard the song and in in what context? I do. Um, I... I took a book from the library when I was 13 years old about the blues and I saw a photograph of Blind Lemon Jefferson and I was fascinated by this photograph and I went to Tower Records in New Jersey. I'm another Jersey guy like you. Um, And I asked them to order a CD of Blind Lemon Jefferson for me. I was probably the only 13-year-old kid ordering Blind Lemon Jefferson CDs back then. And I got the CD and I heard the song Shuck and Sugar. And it was so hypnotic. And the way that the lyrics go back and forth between dark and light, mm. you've got a verse that's really depressing. And then you've got a verse that's really funny. And then you've got a verse that's really hopeful. And then you've got a verse that's really pessimistic. And he has this easy breezy delivery that I found so hypnotic. There's something about blues from the 1920s and the way different emotions, dark and light, get put together in a song that still fascinates me to this day. My guest is Adam Wiener of Low Coat Connie. We are talking about the Public Song Project. He's decided to cover Shuck and Sugar Blues from Blind Lemon Jefferson from 1927. So he was a guitarist, Blind Lemon Jefferson. Your version's on the piano. How did you keep the essence of the original while adapting it for a different instrument? Well, Blind Lemon Jefferson uh, was really the first major, major blues star uh, that played guitar in America. And I still think he's one of the best blues guitarists ever. I would never, ever try to imitate or or try to touch what he did. But I tried to adapt it for piano. And I try to give it a style that would have been current, uh, concurrent with his time. So I played this song, you know, in a 1920s piano style. I hope people dig it. I really loved recording the song for you guys. Before we let you go, we're going to hear the song. But I do want to ask about any other low-cut Connie projects, non-public song project related. What's going on with you? Well, uh, for all of you New York City folks, I'm actually going to be at the 92nd Street Y on February 29th doing an interview on stage and an acoustic performance. I hope to see some New Yorkers in the house. (laughs) Uh, And Allison, I have a film. Um, I made a film called Art Dealers that's going to be coming out later this year. And uh, it's a concert film and more. And uh, we won some awards on the festival circuit. I'm very excited for you guys and everybody to see this art dealers film. All right, before we play your version of Shuck and Sugar Blues, anything specific you'd like people to listen for? 
Well, I just hope people can get hypnotized by the song in the way that Blind Lemon Jefferson hypnotized me and just notice the the back and forth nature of the way we go from different emotions, right? You go from happy to sad with one line. And there are many periods of recorded music where it kind of becomes two-dimensional. Mm. And songs were written in a very like, this is just a party song. This is just a happy song. This is just a tragic song. But back in the 1920s, there were a lot of songs that could combine different emotional states in one song. So I hope you'll notice that in this recording. Adam Weiner of Low Cut Connie, thank you so much for being with us. And thanks for making this music. Pleasure. Thanks for having me, Allison. I love the show. Here's Low Cut Connie with Shuck and Sugar Blues by Blind Lemon Jefferson. I got your picture I'm gonna put it in a frame I got your picture I'm gonna put it in a frame Shuck and sugar So if you leave town I can find you just the same If you don't love me, babe Please don't dog me around you don't love me Please don't dog me around Shuck and sugar Cause when you dog me around Feel like you're gonna put me down My baby, she thinks the world and all of me. I know my baby, she thinks the world and all of me. Shuck and sugar, when she smiles, you know, the light it shines on me. Oh, my baby, baby, don't you wanna go? Oh, my babe, baby, don't you wanna go shuck and sugar? Go across the water, babe, where you know I just can't go. Shuck and sugar 
get home, I'll probably be worried then. Tired of being married, tired of all this settling down. Tired of being married, tired of all this settling down. Shuck and sugar, I just won't be myself. Skip from town to town. Sugar, I just want to be myself and slip from town to town. That was Adam Weiner of the Philly rock band Low Cut Connie with a cover of Shuck and Sugar Blues by Blind Lemon Jefferson, a bluesman and guitar player sometimes called the father of Texas blues. Each day this week, we'll be premiering a new public song project submission from a musician friend of WNYC and spinning the conversation out with some historical context. Today, I'm joined by Amber Drumgool, a professor of Africana Studies in the Africana Studies Department at Cornell University. Amber, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, Allison. It's great to be here. So we heard 1927 song, Shuck and Sugar Blues by Blind Lemon Jefferson. So let's start there. Who was Blind Lemon Jefferson? Absolutely. I love that we started with a song about love, loss, memory, and migration, which is typical for the period. But Blind Lemon Jefferson was actually born Lemon Henry Jefferson uh, near Couchman, Texas, which if anybody's like, where is that? It's about an hour or so outside of the Dallas-Fort Worth area or what we would call the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And he was born around 1893, 1894, since his records get that mixed up. Uh, he's born into a family of sharecroppers and starts playing the guitar in his teen years. So he's going back and forth between his small town in Dallas and playing on the streets until he meets up with some other blues folk. Uh, fast forward to the 1920s, and he's one of the most prolific blues performers and guitarists of the time, recording and performing almost a hundred songs between 1926 and 1929. Those include Black Snake Moan, Mean Jumper Blues, Hangman's Blues, which was a favorite of mine to think about, which is about a man being sentenced to death by a judge. The list goes on and on. So he is definitely one of the most significant figures in the history of blues. Absolutely. Why is that one you like to think about? About a man being sentenced by a judge. Ooh, it's a lot, but it's a part of a larger tradition mm-hmm. of thinking about uh, police systems, thinking about imprisonment, incarceration at that time. And there's actually a whole collection of songs that are around the same topic. So I like to think about them together. And Hangman's Blues is one of his contributions to it. He is sometimes called the father of Texas blues. Mm -hmm. So when and why did blues start to be identified by category like the Texas blues or the Delta blues? Yeah, the identification of blues by category actually happens a little later. Um, That's kind of like the codification. It's tied into certain types of styles. Like some people have certain picking styles. Some people have enter in a staccato style, and that'll be associated with a certain space or region. But at the time, and I do oral history, so I like to talk a lot about blues progenitors about that particular way of thinking. At the time, that was just 
the music of the region that was their functionality. So I would say it wouldn't have necessarily been seen as typified by a region during the 1910s or 1920s, but definitely as we start to hear more recordings outside of the 1920s and into the 1930s, so on and so forth, you can kind of start to pick up and listen to several different themes in the sounds that come and originate from different areas. So you have the Texas blues, you have stuff that's associated with Mississippi, stuff that's originated or uh, kind of associated with Georgia. Um, and then we have like big baskets like the Delta blues, which holds a lot of those different types of categories in them. You know, you specialize at the intersection of gospel music and the blues. Your dissertation, mm -hmm. I believe, was at Yale Divinity School. Is that right? It was at Yale University yeah. in their African American Studies and Religious Studies department. There's a heaven. This it was called. There's a heaven somewhere. Itinerancy, mm -hmm. intimacy, and performance in the lives of gospel blues women, 1915 to 1983. So mm -hmm. we began our show talking about the PBS docu series about gospel, the four hour PBS series. What is interesting? What do you think is interesting about the intersection of the two, of gospel and the blues? I love talking about this, not only because it's my topic, but I think a lot of people tend to associate gospel and the blues as two distinct, disparate categories. Like we have the sacred people over here who are in church and the juke joint blues folks over here who are kind of in the club atmosphere and never the two shall meet. But my work, which starts in the early 20th century, which starts in this 1910, 30 area really shows that there was a lot of cross-pollination going on. So if you want to think about this, we can go back to Vaudeville and the Theater Owners Booking Association, which is a type of circuit that circulated around Black and white-owned theaters where Black people could perform and be a little bit safer. That didn't always happen, but it was meant to tap down on the exploitation that was happening at the time. So this was kind of mapped out. But at the same time, you have a lot of different church congregations that are coming up. I like to think a lot about sanctified churches, about the Church of God in Christ, and they're wanting different converts, different congregants. So they're traveling along the same lines. On one side, you'll have vaudeville and Toba Circuit and the Chitlin Circuit. On the other end, you'll have missionaries and revival that are traveling and they're really, their sounds are overlapping and they're building off of each other and they're running into each other and they're all sharing in somewhat of a spectrum of musical existence. So I like to think of that intersection as a space where it's not that the chicken or the egg, which came first, it's more that they're developing alongside each other. And a lot of progenitors in both categories are learning from and talking to each other and are each other at different points in their lives. My guest is Amber Drumgoul, Cornell Assistant Professor of Africana Studies. We are doing a little bit of blues history. <laughs> so recording of the blues started in the 20s, but obviously that's not where the blues start. When you think about the roots of a song like Shuck and Sugar, where they come from, how do they meet in the blues in the 20s? Mm -hmm. So blues is so interesting because it comes from a variety of places. Depending on how you situate it, the blues can be functional, political, entertaining, all of that mm -hmm. at once. So we can see these foundations in a couple of spaces. One, we can see post-antebellum slavery histories of sharecropping, incarceration, and convict leasing, where people are creating music in order to pass the time through some of their unfortunately free and exploitative labor that's happening. You have blues that were written by both imprisoned and non-imprisoned people. At that time, I think of Bessie Smith's 
uh, Jailhouse Blues and Ma Rainey's Booze and Blues, where she's talking about waking up and the police being around her after somewhat of a wild night. Of course, I talked about the Theater Owners Booking Association in Vaudeville, another space where the blues is circulating. Um, so it's a really capacious form that's starting out in I wouldn't say starting out, but people associate it with like the late 19th and early 20th century, but it's really kind of forming in an organic way based on the experiences of people of the time and operating in a type of entertainment milieu that gives you a way out of maybe sharecropping or for Black women in particular, uh, domestic labor and work in the houses of some of the uh, white, white people who would hire them or even exploit them. We're going to hear Mamie Smith's Crazy Blues from 1920. Uh, It's often called the first blues recording. Let's hear it. Amber, what would you want people to know about Mamie Smith? I would want people to know that Mamie Smith is one of the foremost progenitors of the blues. This crazy blues is seen as one of the first blues recordings by a woman, but she really set the stage for what would become the race records industry and the music industry at large. I think we recently celebrated an anniversary of the centennial celebration of this recording. It was recorded in 1920. So in 2020, everybody was like, oh, 100 years, let's celebrate. But it was also somewhat of an experiment. At the time, the record companies weren't really interested in putting the blues on wax, at least not as performed by Black people and certainly not by Black women. So Mamie Smith, by making this record, really showed both the want for Black recordings and Black blues recordings, but that a Black audience would economically support that side, that type of output. I think it sold about 75,000 copies the day it was released. So again, when we think blues, a lot of times we think men, but we should really think a lot about these blues women and blues queens like Mamie Smith, who set the foundation for what would be the music industry to come. Who are some other women? that come to mind when you think of blues greats from the 1920s? I think of Victoria Spivy. I think of Ethel Waters, Ma Rainey, of course, Mamie Smith. Um, But there's dozens of them who are, again, operating across these different circuits and really laid the foundation for the music that we love and hear and are recreating. Let's listen to some Bessie Smith, shall we? Blackwater Blues from 1927, which supposedly features stride piano player James P. Johnson. Let's take a listen. Mm -hmm. When it rains five days and the skies turn dark at night. When it rains five days and the skies turn dark at night. Then trouble taking place in the lowlands at 
Amber, when we talk about stride piano associated with mm-hmm. James P. Johnson, what do, we, what do we mean when we say stride piano? Mm. We say stride piano, we're talking about a certain type of style that kind of leads into a more jazzier mm-hmm. aesthetic. Um, so I would that would be my association with it. I'm actually not an mm-hmm. expert on that particular Sorry, type to of piano playing. That's okay. Um, but it is jazzier, and that also leads into, I hope, us talking about some of the intersections of jazz and the blues. Yeah, absolutely. Go for it. What, why is it worth highlighting that connection between jazz and blues? Yes, uh, because, again, they build off of and cross-pollinate with each other. So, again, if we go back and we think about what we just heard with Mamie Smith and Bessie Smith, you're hearing pianos, you're hearing the earlier iterations of jazz bands and trios um, in ways that don't necessarily lend themselves to a traditional narrative of the blues coming first and then jazz coming next, which is typically how people like to think about it. All of these genres and styles are porous. They're moving in and out of each other. And people that we talk about when we talk about uh, like the Delta blues, which actually comes after the blues queens that comes after the type of music that Mamie Smith and Bessie Smith would have been making. We're thinking about the ways that genres and styles are formed and then later codified into the different styles that we like to think of today. Um, So again, I'm thinking about how the sounds of the juke joint blues cross-pollinate with gospel revivals and the down-home blues and how that leads into big bands and jazz orchestras that come into a jazz age. But again, the styles are continuously moving out of each other, reviving the old, creating the new. And the 1920s, to me, is an excellent way to think about that type of collaboration and really camaraderie. You were kind enough to pick a song for us to play, Dinah by Ethel Waters, published in 1925. What did you want to say about this before we play it? I actually wanted to think more about a voice than a sound. So Ethel Waters, if we think about blues queens like Mamie, like Ma Rainey, uh, we think tend to think of heavier voices, voices that stagger between the blues and gospel sound. I like to think of Ethel Waters' voice as lighter and more lifted in the ways that Black women's voicings and sounds aren't just monolithic. And Dinah, to me, uh, is one of the perfect iterations of that type of style. Amber Drumgoul is an assistant professor of Africana Studies at Cornell. Thank you so much for walking us through some blues. Of course, it was wonderful. And let's go out on Dinah by Ethel Waters. is 
anyone find out in the state of Carolina? If there is, then you know. Uh, that's Dinah by Ethel Waters. There'll be plenty more public song project content coming this week as we kick off the 2024 edition. But if you're already inspired to get to work on a song and you want some more information or want to listen back to the songs you've heard so far, head to WNYC.org slash public song project. That's WNYC.org slash public song project. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.